Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. So... Here we are then, one year on. It is the moment no one predicted. That's right, it is now one year to the day that the United Kingdom went into the first ever lockdown of an entire nation. One year to the day since we were all told to hide in our homes for three weeks to ensure uh, that the NHS was not overwhelmed. One year to the day since we were assured that this was the only course of action to safeguard the nation's health. One year to the day since we were told to save lives by not seeing our loved ones, our sick relatives, our children, and even sometimes our own pets and yet here we are all because of a virus that came from a city called Wuhan in China have we saved lives not if you believe the figure of 126,000 deaths was the NHS ever overwhelmed not at all has the continuing lockdown policy cost lives and businesses Quite obviously, yes. Undoubtedly, yes. We're taking stock today, of course, and we are taking a minute during this show to think about all those who did lose their lives. But we're also ready to look forward, ready to take stock and ready to ask tough questions about where we are and where we are going. Because as more and more than half of the UK population has now been vaccinated, we ask why the shops and businesses remain largely closed. We ask when we will see that glimmer of hope we were promised about going on holiday and what possible reason can Boris Johnson give for extending lockdown restrictions? We'll be talking to Tory MP and COVID recovery group member Matt Vickers, 0344 499 1000. Christopher Snowden also joins us from the IEA with his reasons why it all needs to move an awful lot faster. Businessman John Caldwell will be here to demand action for the high street. And psychologist Joe Hemmings as well will tell us what the lockdown effect has been on our collective psyche. 0344 499 1000. Coming up later on, we'll be going north of the border to find out what happens next in the Nicola Sturgeon round now that she's been found to have misled the Scottish Parliament and we're looking at cowboy car parking operators as well. Luckily for us, the government is apparently going to clamp down on them. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Now, without further ado, let us go straight to Matt Vickers, Conservative MP for Stockton South, one of the new uh, breed of Tory MPs, sits on the back benches, has an awful lot to say about an awful lot of things. Matt, very good morning to you. Welcome. 
Good morning. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. We've got lots to talk about this morning, loads of things to get on with. But let's kick off, first of all, Matt, just with this being the one-year anniversary uh, of the original lockdown. I remember it well. Um, I remember walking out of the pub across the street from here at News UK uh, and thinking, oh, well, three weeks doesn't sound too bad. We can probably manage it. And here we are a year later. Uh, we've been locked down for almost 53% of the year. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't know what to say, really. I mean, what, what's your, what are your thoughts today, Matt? I think, I mean, it's horrifying. It is. It's the fact that when we were told to go home, lock ourselves away and the thought that I remember at the time thinking this could go on for months, you know, we might get a couple of months of this. Oh, no, we might get three months of this and now a year on and here we are. Um, but then again, there is that bit of light at the end of the tunnel now. This vaccine is rolling out. We've got some amazing numbers on it. Uh, but a year, a year of hell, to be quite frank, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, well, it has been. I mean, so many people have, have kind of coped with it just about. And, and they've always coped with it on the message that, you know, it's going to get better next month or maybe it's going to get better in May. But this morning we're told, Matt, that it might not get better next month and it might not get better in May because it might be all the way through to June and possibly July before we do the things that the government promised we would do in May. Yeah, I mean, I mean, uh, when you look at the, um, the vaccine programme is amazing. It is amazing that Britain is leading the Yeah, but the if way. it's not making any difference to what we can do, what's the point? It's not making as much difference as we'd like it to make at all. Yeah. Uh, I think it's all about the economy as well. It's about the consequences of the fact that this thing is going on and on and on. And how long can businesses last? How, can they, how long can those non-essential retailers last? How can, long can that hospitality uh, sector last? Uh, that's the challenge. That's the biggie. Not only is it uncomfortable for us all, it's about the cost to to the economy. Yes. Uh, and coming up this Thursday, Matt, there's a vote, I believe, in the House of Commons on the lockdown restrictions and what happens next and whether the government gets a permission to extend them. What are you going to do? I think, well, to be honest, the discussion is ongoing because it's not, a, I don't think it's as clear cut as this is an, an extended lockdown or it isn't. It's about what that really means. Mm. Um, because during this lockdown, during the last year, we have not been in, the lockdown that we're in now uh, and it's what the consequences are and that what that really means for people in the street and what that really means for businesses so i'll be making that informed decision between now and thursday and i right. haven't made it yet and i mean the covid recovery group of which you are a member obviously has a view on opening up probably quicker than, than some people in the cabinet um you've had some success in, in persuading the prime minister uh, and his advisors to, uh, to to ease things a little bit but he's also under immense pressure it seems to me from some of these um you know advisors who who say things like the person who was on at the weekend said oh we'll be taking this uh, through for years we'll be wearing masks for years social distancing for years i mean people do not want to do that no it's about balance and you know what people people have had enough they have had enough. we've made those sacrifices we've complied with what we're required to do uh people have had enough and they want to get on with it they've seen the success of the, the vaccine rollout they want to they want to get the damn thing going um and now we have something like 98 percent of people will have been vaccinated 98 percent of the people who are likely to die as a consequence will have been vaccinated shortly and we you know that does mean we need to start opening doors and getting getting the world back to normal or living with some of the consequences. Well, because we were, t I mean, Julie Hartley-Brew was saying this in her show just before I joined her. Um, you know, we were told that this would be a game changer. We were told the vaccine would make a difference to everything. And yet we're still talking as though we're in the same place as we were last year. Yeah, I think, I think you're right. Although there is, there is a roadmap now. There is a timetable. The, the doors will be opening on, on various businesses. And we've just got to hope that keeps moving at a pace. Do you, do you think there's a I chance think... that that won't happen? on April the 12th, because on April the 12th, here at Talk Radio, we will be celebrating that day. Uh, we'll be doing a show from a pub. Uh, we're yep. making plans to be doing that already. And if you're in London, you're very welcome to join us. But I'll be but, there. I'll be there. I'm looking forward know, to it. I can't if, wait. But if, that sounds odd. But if the government cancels that date, we're going to be coming for you. 
I'm hopeful it's not going to cancel that date. Uh, and, and I think you'll have quite a rough ride in here if they do cancel it. Uh, I think the travel ban, the travel ban is a biggie for people. Well, this is We've a big thing. I mean, this is a huge down. thing. People have started booking up, haven't they? Well, not only have people booked holidays, we're now told this morning we may not be able to go away on May the 17th like we were promised. It may now be June. And if you do go on holiday, you can risk a £5,000 fine. That's extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah, well, the thing is, do you know what? There's, I, I mean, it's the most frustrating thing in the world. Everybody is gagging to get away. We're gagging for a bit of sunshine. We're sick of being trapped indoors. Um, but do you know what? I suppose there is there is a realistic consequence if you do go abroad and you bring back these horrible variants from abroad where they're they're just not up with us. Well, on there's the, horrible uh, variants in Bristol. Where we'll get on to Bristol in a minute. But there was a variant yeah. in Bristol, variant in Kent. Who knows? There might even be a variant in some other part of Macclesfield. But you can't uh, start telling people not to go to Macclesfield in case there's a variant there, can you? Yeah, well, I think I think there's a clearly they reckon there's a much higher chance of getting in in abroad, particularly in Europe at the moment, uh, where they aren't they aren't quite as uh, sharp elbowed as us. But you know what? It's a fantastic opportunity to pump some money back into the British economy. There's some great holidays to be had in the UK, Mike. Well, you, you say get yourself, well, you up s- north, get yourself up north to my part of the world. Well, you uh, say that you say yeah. that, Matt. But the thing is, you can either move or you can't. You know, and I think the point about the way that people are frustrated is that the government needs to pivot around on this and not be so frightened of the variant. I mean, I've said this many times. Just because two people come back from the Philippines and they've got COVID, it doesn't mean there's a Philippines variant. It just means two people have got COVID who happen to come in from the Philippines. And either you lock the country down properly or you don't. I think I think there is probably a different. Well, do you know what? First, I'm going to persuade you that you need to get yourself to the Dales or to the North York Moors because it's a fantastic okay. place to come. Get right. some money spent in the hospitality trade here in the UK. But no, aside from that, I think it is insanely it is insanely frustrating that holidays are being cancelled. It is insanely frustrating that we're going to have to wait even longer to get away. Mm. Uh, but do you know what? Clearly, their assessment says that that risk of travelling abroad and bringing this stuff back and forward uh, is is too high to take. And do you know what? I do not want to be in another lockdown. I want that pub open. I want I want those shops open. I want the world to go back to normal in the yes. UK. If that but, 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 this is my, but this is partly the point, Matt, and we, we've been banging on about this, Julia and I, for, for a long time. We've got vaccines here in this country, right? Now, what the vaccine apparently does, because Matt Hancock's always boasting about it, is it very much reduces your risk and my risk of getting seriously ill with COVID if we catch it. It doesn't stop us getting it, but it stops us being hospitalised, more or less. It stops people dying. So what is the problem? Go in anywhere if you are that protected. It's all about, it's, I mean, the more this thing swills around, the more chance there is of these variants that we, the vaccines aren't quite as helpful with. Um, so I think that's, that's yeah, it. But, but, I mean, but what I'm saying, though, Matt, is, is you could go to Magaluf and pick up all kinds of horrible germs, doing all sorts of terrible things. That doesn't mean you shouldn't go on holiday there, does it? Well, that's a very good argument. Um, it depends what you get up to abroad, doesn't it? But I suppose you don't have to get up to some of the things you might have to get up to in Magaluf. Yes, but what I'm saying is it's not for the government to tell people, oh, it might be a bit risky if you go to Magaluf, you know? Is it? Yeah. Well, the thing is, just to, to prevent the spread of COVID, you have to do more than. I do wish up. to point out, by the way, I've never been to Magaluf. Before you start casting any sort of aspersions on me, I'm a family man. I take my children to very nice places and have very big villas where they have private swimming pools and we don't mix with anybody. So I'm in no danger at all, basically. So you give me a special pass. I'd be very happy to go to Magaluf tomorrow if it means we get a bit of sunshine and get away abroad. But um, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll make do with. <laughs> Now, let, now let's talk a little bit more. Well, let, well, I think the, the bottom line is, I think if you can give this message to the government, Matt, the bottom line is we want them to stop extending the extension. We want them to make a promise and to stick to it and to literally just give the people back something, you know? 
One thing you can take from me, Mike, is that there is a gang of us in here pushing exactly that corner, uh, and we'll keep doing so. Good, uh, very glad to hear it. From, as soon as it's safe and practical to do so, and we'll keep pushing the corner. Excellent. Now, while we're on the subject of um, pushing the boundaries, let's talk about that dreadful event on Sunday night in Bristol, because I know you were quite worked up about this riot that took place where the police were under siege, effectively, uh, in a part of the city of Bristol, uh, hijacked uh, a relatively peaceful protest and turned it into an anarchistic kind of, you know... Um, absolute festival of madness it's i mean it's the law of the law isn't it it's, yeah. it's just abhorrent vile disgusting i mean kill the bill i mean how could people start chanting that about mm. it's it just it just doesn't work for me and then you saw nadia whittam refusing to condemn the thing i know i mean anybody watching that and seeing our police officers seeing our you know police stations under siege police officers being abused yeah, being and attacked, injured as well yeah Police vans are on fire. I mean, it's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous that anybody, any rightful, you know, right-minded person is disgusted by it, is angered by it. Uh, and to have people there refusing to condemn it is unbelievable. But then you actually look at, this follows on the back of some pretty unsavoury, disgusting uh, riots we've had during the course of the year. Mm. Um, and then last week we saw a bill come in to control them, to double the maximum sentence for those who assault our police officers to control these riots. They're not protests, they're riots. Mm. Um, and, and the Labour Party opposed that. Uh, unbelievable. I know. Unbelievable. I mean, obviously, I take it you are very much in favour of, of, of strengthening these particular rules. But my worry is that there are uh, a sort of a rump of these people. I mean, we're told now in the papers this morning there's 500 people uh, that, the, that the police in Bristol are currently looking for who took part in this. That's quite a large number of people. And they're anarchists. They're not interested in, in living the sort of life that we all want to live in a, in a peaceful, civilised society. They're interested in disruption. They're interested in having a summer of discontent. They're interested in having riots all over Britain all through the summer. And I think there are some people who worry that that's what we might see. Yeah, well, it's damaging to legitimate protests, actually, because anybody who goes out there to protest about something in a meaningful way ends up getting the thing hijacked by these people who just serial protesters mm. who travel the country causing chaos uh, and joining any bandwagon they can jump on. And yeah. actually, it's right. Do you know what the most important part of the policing of this entire thing is the, fa is the fact that these people do need to be tracked down, do need to be held to account. And all that camera footage needs to be used to maximum effect. Mm. And there needs to be real consequences because these people cannot carry on doing it. Is it not time we started categorising some of these organisations as domestic terror groups? I think because we're, that's I what think they are. That way. I think we're heading that way. Um, and actually... I don't know that they're necessarily groups. They're just gangs of yobs who join on and create havoc. Well, I think um, they're organised. I think it's much more than that, Matt. I don't think this is in any way random. I think they know what they're doing. They they have a particular path of, of destruction. They target particular things in particular areas. And I don't think there's any doubt that they're organised. I mean, there's a group in Bristol which is uh, has got a Twitter account, some kind of anarchist group, right? They are very much claiming that they organised it. I think there's a contrast, isn't there, between the two? Because you've got, you've got the... The guys who turn up at any protest site treating it like a festival and they've got their tinny in their hand and they're smoking whatever they're smoking and chilling out. And then you've got the, the, the people who are slightly more dark and slightly more sinister and the Extinction Rebellion crowd who are going all out to create havoc. Yeah. Who are, you know, gluing themselves to, to buses and preventing trains, preventing newspapers being printed, yeah. preventing ambulances getting to hospital. You know, ridiculous, disgusting, mm. foul and completely out of order. And it's right 
that the law is going to do something about that now. Yes, I think it is. But how soon will it do it? And how will the police react? Because we had a big conversation yesterday about the police, what they're allowed to do, what they should do, the fact that they've been given kind of, you know, difficult and contemplating, uh, you know, sort of different orders at different events, you know, one order against Black Lives Matter, a different order against lockdown protests, a different order uh, against a vigil for a murdered woman. And then again, in Bristol, not really able to defend themselves. I think I think there is a there will be a significant change. I think this bill symbolises a significant change. It's just giving the police the powers to get on and do the job we're asking them to do, uh, and defending them in the process. When people go out and attack and abuse police officers, it's right that there's going to be some yeah. harsh is doled out. But it is um, but it is also bringing a focus, is it not, Matt, on this uh, lockdown rules and some of the lockdown rules that they've been asked to enforce, where they've been out sort of arresting you know, two women having a cup of coffee, walking around talking about the moors. They were walking around the moors, I think, weren't they? Um, you know, people sitting down on a park bench, people being arrested for you know shouting a bit loudly. You know, is that really where we want to be the, with the police? I think we need to give the police the powers uh, to do the job we ask them to do and trust them to to use them properly. And where it goes wrong, in you know, examples like you just quoted, then, then there has to, you know, we have to have that discussion. But we, it shouldn't hold us back in giving them them powers. I mean, when you hear the the opposition to the the police the PCS bit C bill last week about oh, you know, there's an issue with noise, there's an issue with this, there's an issue with that. You, you know, prevent realistic protest. I don't think police officers go to work to prevent people protesting. They go to work to prevent riots because mm. these things are not protests. They're riots, they're what we've seen recently. Um, and I, I think we've got to have some level of trust in our police to do the right thing. I think uh, you're absolutely right. Take away powers and put them on the front line to do a job impossible. Right. Matt, thank you very much indeed. Matt Vickers, Conservative MP for Stockton South, of course, with his view on what the police rights should be, on what the police should be doing, uh, and what these horrible, ghastly, idiotic protesters' uh, punishment should be. I'd like to hear from you. 0344 499 1000. Is it not time uh, that we started categorising some of these groups as domestic terror groups? I think it is that time. This is Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. We will come to you this hour. We'll have some time for your calls because that's what we want to do here because we'd like to take your views and your common sense and pass it on to all the people that we do talk to. One of them uh, right now, John Caldwell, uh, has been on this uh, station many times, business leader, philanthropist, founder of Phones for You. John, a very good morning to you. Hi, how are you? Yeah, very well. I think the last time you and I spoke in any meaningful way was actually down in the old tent of common sense on College Green, which seems like a lifetime ago, uh, when we were actually uh, able to jump on a train that was full of people, able to go to the pub afterwards, able to, you know, go very out for... Times. I mean, just incredible, isn't it, what this year has been like? Oh, yes, it's, it's unbelievable. But of course, you know, this is just a consequence of something that's very, very seriously hit us that was... By most people, unexpected. I wouldn't say it was very unexpected by me, actually, because for a long, long time now, probably for 20 years, I've been forecasting a fiasco as a result of uh, bacterial resistance of antibiotics. And, and we've seen the resistance of antibiotics endlessly. I was sort of taken aback, really, that it was a virus that got us instead. But uh, something like this was always going to happen. And then it's how do you deal with it and how do you respond? Yes. And I think everybody understood at the beginning that it was very much of an unknown and it was very much something that we should probably be very careful about. And I think we all accepted that. And I certainly did. I mean, for the first eight weeks of the lockdown uh, in March and April and May, um, I didn't see my own children because they live, you know, 35 miles south of here. Um, and I decided it was probably best if I didn't do that. But I wonder now whether that was the right thing to do, because... I mean, you know, it's not like we'd suffered massively, terribly badly because I didn't see them, you know, but I wish I had now. 
Yeah, it, it's been a very, very difficult situation. And uh, have the government handled it correctly or not, that's a really difficult one to answer as well, because all along I was much more in favour of exposure and people getting on with their lives mm. because I was very worried about the people's lives that we're going, we're going to destroy as a consequence of lockdown through them not getting proper attention through medical issues and through depressions and suicides. So not not to mention, of course, the financial effect on millions of families that's been devastated, especially those that are in the excluded category. So I've been very concerned all along about that. But once we did get a vaccine, then I do believe the government's strategy was right because we do have to save as many lives as we can. Yes, it's causing further financial damage, and that is why the government need to employ Cordwell Pandemic Recovery and invest massively in the economy, more so than they're doing at the moment, because it is affordable and it is essential, and it's the only way of getting Britain booming again. So if the government do the right things, I think the future for Britain is very, very bright. And let's give credit where it's due, because the vaccine rollout has been nothing short of phenomenal. We had the foresight to order hundreds of millions of vaccines and we've driven it like mad. And when you look at the tables of vaccination compared to the whole of Europe, mm. we are light years ahead. But then, of course, you get the European president uh, complaining and whinging that uh, we're getting an unfair share. But I can only assume that, well, not assume, I think it's right to say we put hard fast orders in for 300 million vaccines. Meanwhile, they didn't put the orders in properly. They weren't secured. And then they went on to say in the AstraZeneca case that the vaccine was not safe. So I think they are the masters of their own destiny. No, I think so. I think, they've been, I think they've been appalling. Also, you know, to complain appalling. about the fact... The way she's behaved is appalling. Talking about a vaccine war against Britain... And it's not one they could win anyway, because we supply many, many of the ingredients that go into that vaccination for both Pfizer and AstraZeneca. So talking about a vaccine war is appalling. Mm. But by the same token, we are all in this together. Britain does have to put itself first, especially where we've got contractual and legal rights to these vaccines. But of course, this is a worldwide problem. And <clears throat> Europe needs to do the best to vaccinate their people and we need to be as cooperative as possible whilst looking after our people um, as much as possible under the contractual agreements that we have with all the vaccination companies. Yes, no, I, I totally get the idea that, you know, if we are vaccinated as an island and nobody else is, then that's not really any good to us either because people want to travel, people want to be able to go to other countries, we want people yeah. from other countries to come here. So yes, I, I accept all that. But it's a little bit, Ursula von der Leyen's kind of line is a bit like somebody complaining that you opened your shop yesterday and you've sold more stuff than they have because they didn't bother opening. I think that's a great analogy. You know, at the end of the day, they haven't done the job properly. No. They've made an appalling mess of it. And as a consequence of the appalling mess, they're now trying to throw mud Britain's way and deflect from the mess that they've made of it. And thank goodness we're out of Europe and that we've made a great job of the vaccinations. Yes, absolutely right. Tell us a bit more, John, about your idea for investment and what the government should be doing, because, of course, at the moment, much of the money that the government is spending is being spent to kind of prop up jobs, 
the furlough yeah. scheme, which is really money going nowhere, uh, and it's not really, uh, in my view anyway, being being sort of retreaded through the economy. What's what's your plan? Well, I think the first thing, just on answer to that particular question about the where the money's going, uh, br- the British population now are about 140, 150 billion pounds better off in the pockets. So when we do get out of this uh, pandemic uh, isolation, there will be a big spending spree. And of course, because holidays are unlikely to resume, it will mostly go into Britain, into British holidays, into British products uh, by and large. So I think there will be a major recovery, but that won't solve the problem for millions unemployed and for those businesses have gone, that have gone under. So what I've been encouraging the government do, to do now for 12 months is to employ what I call CPR, which is Cordwell Pandemic Recovery. And the four major components of that are to invest massively in an energy, environmental and toxic, uh, toxic free city to be a leading technological uh, country in that area so that we've got exports in the future that we can really prosper out of that. So that's the first arm. Mm. The second is to create around about half a million really world class um, uh, apprenticeship schemes. Ones like the one I had with Michelin Tire Company, which was truly amazing when I look back on it and did the world of good for me. And I want that for our young people. The third thing is to invest massively in UK infrastructure to create jobs and make the infrastructure world class for the future expansion of Britain. Mm. And the final part is to encourage companies onto our shores with low taxation rates and special deals to get people onto British shores, creating manufacturing industry and employing British people into jobs. And what do you make of the current sort of plans from the government, which are all based around this kind of green revolution? I'm not particularly convinced that that's the way forward. I mean, we've seen recently up in the northeast uh, uh, plans for a coal mine being completely shelved for environmental reasons. They say that the 500 jobs that that would have created uh, will be multiplied by by factor of 10 uh, or possibly 20 uh, in the green um, industrial revolution. Renewable energy and the reduction of our toxic environment is absolutely crucial to mankind and crucial to the economy. So I'm very much in favour of anything that invests huge sums of money to become technological experts in in renewable energy, in reduction of toxicity, reduction of plastics and all of those areas. And if we can become world leaders in that, not only will we be doing an amazing job for the environment, but also the UK economy can really prosper out of our exports, our expertise and the technology that we have. And as far as that movement of, of jobs and that training situation, I mean, how long is that going to take, though? Because we're talking about starting up industries which at the moment don't exist, aren't we? Well, they do exist, but you're absolutely right. There is a great lead time to this. But, you know, like we have two options. We either don't invest in the UK economy and go down a sort of semi-austerity route and just and just absolutely suffer our way out of this, or we grab the grab the nettle and really really push forward invest a huge amount of money it won't produce the jobs tomorrow as you said but it will start to produce them so that in five ten years time we have a hugely prosperous economy rather than the alternative which is to really just kick the can down the road 
and uh, the UK not be prosperous and buoyant. And I think the U- I think the Conservative government have got half of that message. I think they know that making Britain prosperous in the with now the advantages we've got of Brexit. I think they know that that's really crucial. Uh, but there is this natural prudence uh, within Rishi Sunak to not borrow too much, not print too much money in order to uh, drive the economy forward. But for me, it's a no-brainer because we can borrow money at next to zero. And as long as we invest very wisely in in uh, in businesses, and industry that creates jobs and creates GDP growth, then that investment will be repaid many times over in the future. If all we do is pump it into people's pockets, it'll be inflationary and uh, fiasco for the economy. So that's what they need to do. CPR is the absolute answer to the future. And what about the uh, revival of the high street and and the kind of the the repopulating, if you like, of our offices inside cities? Because I'm in London, obviously, but many cities across the country are in the same state where an awful lot of big buildings are just lying empty at the moment. And, you know, while there will be rent being paid on those by big companies, that's going to come to an end, isn't it? It is, Mike. And you're right. It's an absolute huge, huge worry because the... The inevitability is that the heart and soul is going to be ripped out of our city centres. And what that actually means is that we turn them into more depressing places, less attractive, and which also, of course, creates a a vicious spiral because nobody wants to go to somewhere that's depressing. Mm. So that in itself will reduce the footfall. So there there is some real challenges in our city centres. And it goes beyond that because when you get the degradation of the high street, which which now is has happened and is inevitable, uh, what you get then is a reduction in rents, which will put pension fund pension funds under pressure mm. because they won't be getting the rental incomes that they did or, or perhaps get zero rental uh, incomes. And we're in a disastrous downward spiral. Now, does that have to be a disaster? No, but it does require a huge government action because what we've got to do is reinvent the high streets. And I think the only way now uh, and let's face it, online is here forever. It always was from, mm. the, from the 90s when I introduced it into my phones for you business. It was only one or two percent of a business, but I knew it was going to become increasingly important and wanted to grasp that right. and use it to insulate myself from uh, attack. So it's oh, that was always going to be the case. It was going to continue to be the case and it's going to uh, continue as an evolution onto online. Mm. So we have to breathe life into our city centres by bringing people back in, turning uh, suitable properties into residential, start mixing residential into our city centres to breathe that life back in and put community back in. And if we don't do that and a various range of other measures to, to make our high streets lively again, they're just going to degrade over the next 10 or 20 years further. Mm. And it just will not be a pretty place. No, I mean, I'm a big fan of of shopping local. I'm a big fan of small business and, and, you know, particularly, you know, high quality work that people do. You know, if you're running a a butcher's shop, you know, have great quality stuff. If you're running a vegetable shop, have great quality stuff. And people will come and people will shop there. But the worry, of course, for a lot of people in in those kinds of businesses is the supermarkets are so big now and so, you know, able to kind of uh, squeeze the suppliers um, that they've got too much power, really. Is that something you would look at? Well, 
think we've I think we've finally lost John. I'm afraid, John, we're going to have to uh, cap it there. We'll take some calls in a moment because uh, the communications are clearly not uh, all that good. But we'll take some calls coming up. Uh, I want to hear from all of you because, of course, there is going to be a time uh, when you are going to have to ask that question. What is going on in the city? Is there any point in working in the city if there aren't any jobs in the city? If all the office space is going to be shut down and turned into flats and houses for people, well, what are they going to do if there aren't any jobs? How is that all going to work? 0344 499 1000. This is Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm delighted to say we're going to speak to Adam Tompkins, Tory MSP for the Glasgow region up there uh, in Scotland, because today is the day uh, that basically Nicola Sturgeon has been told that she misled uh, the Scottish Parliament uh, over the Alex Salmond case. A separate inquiry yesterday by James Hamilton QC cleared um, Nicola Sturgeon uh, of breaching the ministerial code, which if they had not done that, might have led to her resignation. She clings on to power uh, in a much weakened state, I would say. But let's find out from Adam what's going to happen next. Adam, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Hi, how are you doing? Yeah, very well indeed. I mean, this case has gone from bad to worse, it seems to me, over the course of time. I mean, you know, we've been told on many occasions that Scotland has become this kind of one-party state. I mean, even the, the committee that's been looking at all of these things was split down political party lines, the SNP siding with Nicola Sturgeon and everybody else siding against her. You know, what happens now? Well, what happens now is the Scottish Conservatives have put down a motion of no confidence in the First Minister, and that motion will be debated uh, this afternoon in the Scottish Parliament. The debate will be led by uh, Ruth Davidson, um, of course, and uh, then later on this afternoon there'll be a vote uh, on that motion. Uh, And we already know, I'm afraid, that uh, Sturgeon is going to win that vote because um, her lackeys, the Green Party, 
are going to back her, notwithstanding the fact that she has been found today by an all-party committee of the uh, Scottish Parliament to have misled mm. Parliament. Um, uh, she misled Parliament about what she knew and when she knew it about the complaints against Alex Hammond. Um, and uh, what we have seen over the course of the last, I mean, this thing has been going on now for more than two and a half years. Yeah. What we know is that the SNP have run a government that bullies staff, that silences dissent, uh, that withholds evidence not only from uh, parliamentary uh, committees, but from uh, judicial review hearings and court from their own lawyers, uh, indeed. This is a government with no separation of powers. This is a government out of control. This is a government that is corrupt from top to bottom. Um, and yet they're going to survive um, a, the motion of no confidence this afternoon because uh, they have the numbers uh, in the Scottish Parliament. And uh, that's why we're going back to the country in May um, uh, to try and... Um, Try and see if we can do something about it. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because the Green Party uh, members on the Holly on the Hollywood Committee looking into whether she misled Parliament actually sided with with you guys and said, "Well, she did mislead Parliament," but presumably they don't think that's serious enough um, to back a call for her to uh, resign. Yeah, well, it's interesting. I mean, so the, the Green, the formerly Green member on the on the on the committee is a guy called Andy Whiteman, who is one of the most independent-minded. Uh, and one of the most intelligent MSPs in the Scottish Parliament, uh, who left the Green Party uh, late last year, I think, um, or possibly early this year, I forget mm. which, um, over something completely different, over his leader, Patrick Harvey's incredibly uh, woke censoriousness. <laughs> I remember Patrick to, uh, Harvey the, from the, my, from the, my the, days the, of working up there. Yeah, indeed. And it, it, this was about, all about the hate crime bill and the, uh, and the, and the way in which that, that all rolled out. But yeah. um, so Andy's a good man. I don't agree with him all the time. I mean, you know, he's a very left-wing individual, but obviously I don't agree with him all the time, but he's he's got a powerful and independent mind. Uh, and uh, yeah, but the, the, the Green Party think that it's more important to keep that, um, yes, pro-independence majority intact um, and to support Nicola Sturgeon as they do year in, year out and, it, it, with the budget, as they do week in, week out in terms of the, the very softball questions that they, they bowl at Nicola Sturgeon in the Scottish Parliament. And, and I'm afraid that's where we are. Yeah, I mean, it's an extraordinary case, not least for the amount of money and taxpayers' money that, that, that's been wasted on it. But also, yeah. in no other business that I know, Adam, could you get away with what she's got away with, which is to basically say, oh, I might have made a few mistakes, I might have got a few things wrong, but I didn't know I was misleading Parliament. Therefore, when I did mislead them, uh, it doesn't really count. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, these are really serious um, uh, charges against her. Um, and they're serious because, you know, in this country, and for very good reason, we don't elect governments. We elect parliaments. And, and governments emerge out of parliaments and are accountable to those parliaments in the same way that Boris Johnson is accountable to the House of Commons so too is Nicola Sturgeon at least in theory accountable to the Scottish Parliament so if a minister at least all if the first minister misleads that parliament that's a very serious constitutional offence there isn't a more serious in a parliamentary democracy like the United Kingdom there isn't a more serious uh, constitutional offence actually than the first minister of a country misleading uh, the parliament to which she uh, is accountable. But in all of this also, um, you know, we mustn't lose sight of the women who initially complained about sexual misconduct from the former first minister and uh, Nicola Sturgeon's boss and mentor for 20 years, Alex Salmon. The, it's the women at the heart of this who have been so badly let down by Sturgeon herself mm. and by Sturgeon's government. And yet not a single head has rolled. No. The, head of the, the head of the civil service, who is a woman, is still there. Nicola Sturgeon's chief of staff, who is a woman, is still there. Nicola Sturgeon herself is still there. 
So the idea that anybody here in the SNP or anybody here in the, at the top end of the Scottish government is taking this seriously, is taking responsibility for their own failures, failures which have been condemned in court and now condemned uh, by a Holyrood Committee mm. inquiry report. I mean, it's just, it's a dark, I have to say, it's a dark, I don't, this gives me no pleasure to say, but this is a really dark day for Scottish democracy. I think it is. And and for those SNP sort of um, supporters of Nicola Sturgeon to say that she's been cleared by James Hamilton, a QC uh, who indeed was put in the job uh, and confirmed in the job by Nicola Sturgeon. Um, I mean, he has by no means cleared her or exonerated her. There's a lot of questions uh, in Absolutely. his statement as well, right? Absolutely. And one of the things which has been lost in all of this, which he very clearly and unambiguously said in his report published yesterday, is it is for the Scottish Parliament to decide whether the Scottish Parliament was misled by the First Minister. Mm. And the Scottish Parliament today has decided that the Scottish Parliament was misled by the First Minister. The um, QC's report yesterday, James Hamilton's report yesterday, was about whether um, Sturgeon had breached the ministerial code. And it's a lawyer's verdict about whether her behaviour breached that code uh, as a matter, as it were, of legal analysis. But this isn't a matter of legal analysis. This is a matter of politics and a question of trust and mm. a question of judgment. And he absolutely and emphatically said in his report yesterday that the question of whether Sturgeon misled the Scottish Parliament is a question not for him, but a question for the Scottish Parliament itself. And the verdict on that charge has come in today. And the answer is clearly, unambiguously, yes, she did. Yes. She misled Parliament. There were serious flaws in the process from top to bottom, from beginning to end. And as I say, what we've learned in all of this is that the Scottish government uh, thrives on a culture of bullying its staff, silencing dissent, withholding uh, key evidence, not only from parliamentarians like me, but from its own lawyers, from courts um, and from tribunals, uh, a culture of secrecy and cover up from top to bottom. It stinks. It really stinks. It's been quite an extraordinary situation. Adam, listen, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us. Adam Tompkins, the uh, Tory MSP for the Glasgow region. Quite a remarkable um, situation, basically, in Scotland, because what we've got uh, is a first minister who seems on the face of it to be completely and utterly unassailable. When she was first told uh, that there was going to be a decision made about whether or not she had misled Parliament, she said, well, let us wait for the final report. Uh, when it was leaked last week, uh, she said, let us wait for the final report. The final report is now out and the final report says, yes, she did mislead Parliament. I don't think it matters a jot what James Hamilton QC thinks, because James Hamilton QC, apart from the fact that he was appointed by First Minister Nicola Sturgeon, has also by far and away not exonerated her, but he has said that much of her statement was incomplete, that much of what she said was not actually uh, something that could be stood over, not something that she could stand by and be proud of. It's very clear uh, that she made misstatements. It's very clear that she misremembered things. It's very clear uh, in most people's language, in most people's common sense talk, that she did not tell the truth. It's as simple as that, isn't it? This is Talk Radio. There's lots more coming up, of course. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. A lot of people this morning, of course, are focusing on the numbers of people who have died, the numbers of families who have lost loved ones. That's obviously a massive impact for, for any family. Uh, many people have lost elderly relatives, but an awful lot more people have been suffering in different ways as well. Let's talk to Joe Hemmings, behavioural psychologist, to find out just how bad it is out there. Joe, very good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Mike. So, I mean, it doesn't feel quite right saying here we are a year on. How are you doing? But how are you doing? Well, yeah, I think it's the, the year thing that makes it feel sort of slightly overwhelming. For me, it was that second Mother's Day when I couldn't see my son. Mm. 
when it comes around to two of them. Yes. You know, you can sort of deal with one event. You can deal with one Christmas. You can deal with one anniversary, birthday, whatever it is. And then the second one comes around and you think, God, it's been a year. Um, so, yeah, look, I've taken in bite-sized chunks. I've had my moments when I felt a bit miserable. I'm a lot more fortunate than many. I, I can't, I always was working from home, therefore I'm still working mm. from home. Um, but for a lot of people, and as you quite rightly summed up, there isn't a single individual, even those sitting in their ivory castles being pampered, mm. who really haven't felt some significant change in themselves in this last year. No, of course. And even though you say, of course, it's something that you do normally anyway, and you do work from home, but it's kind of, it's the fact that you're forced to do it rather than the fact that it's your choice, because I'm assured, I'm sure that when you were working from home a couple of years ago, you know, you would pop out for lunch with somebody or you'd you'd pop into town for dinner or you'd go out for a drink, you know, you go and see your friends, you might go around their house for dinner, that kind of thing. So it's a very different working from home scenario, isn't it? It's very different. Yeah, I mean, I'd be in, I might even be in your studio, you know. Yeah, uh, I mean, you know, wonders may never cease. I mean, we haven't had anybody in here in the building. We do, I mean, we do Plank of the Week every week now with Dawn Neeson and Kevin O'Sullivan because we can't get anybody else in the building. I mean, no disrespect to them. We love it that they do it. But, you know, uh, it was a kind of rotating scenario before, but now nobody's allowed in. Yeah, look, it's really, really frustrating. I mean, if I'm going to try and emphasize the positive i suppose one thing this year has done in that it has changed everybody is that some people have had the time to reflect upon their lives and become a bit more self-aware you know am i in the right relationship am i in the right job what should i do next perhaps a change of career is in order um you know cherishing the things we took for granted Mm. uh is another benefit i mean who knew that hugging would be something we'd ever have to have taken away from i know I mean, I mean, without wishing to be too personal, have you hugged nobody for a year? I've hugged, <laughs> I've hugged my son, but believe me, he is like hugging a mannequin. He's about <laughs> as animated and as enthusiastic <laughs> as hugging a shop floor yeah. mannequin. Uh, so of the two sons I have, I somehow seem to have landed with the wrong one in my bubble. Right. So. Uh, yeah, that's about it, though. It is tricky, isn't it? Because, I mean, looking at some of the pieces that have been written, there's been an awful lot of navel-gazing because we are in one of those kind of periods of time anyway where, you know, the sort of the wokery means that you have to be incredibly sort of self-aware and you have to wonder about almost everything and ask questions about almost everything that you think and do. But I wonder whether an awful lot of people, young people in particular have said this to me, that, you know, socially they really miss going out. They really miss being with groups of people, you know, not necessarily because they haven't got a girlfriend or a boyfriend, but just, you know, being with other people. And without seeing other people, it can be a pretty lonely life. Particularly for young people, because they aren't going to get those years back again. Those key years, you know, the ones who went to university, first taste of freedom, all that certainly had Mm. a different take to it this time. Um, you know, but just getting out there and socialising and exercising, being with their mates. I mean, they they won't get that time back. And this is an important part of their development. Another thing I've had a lot of a, a clients, uh, to, you know, I do some uh, singles coaching, women in their late 30s who are literally, you know, they have been robbed mm. of a year of being able to meet a partner and time isn't on their side. So it's people, I think, particularly who have some sort of, time restriction in their lives mm. that have felt the pain more than anyone else and now it is yeah one year on it's uh, it's 
beyond frustrating. And it I really is. And I mean, you're, you're a behavioural psychologist, so you'll know a bit about this. I mean, SAGE is full of behavioural psychologists and it feels to me as though they've been working us in a way um, to try and make us think in a particular way because even now we're being told, well, you know, that date for May the 17th might not be quite the one that we had in mind. We might, You know, there's been this always this constant sort of messaging from the government that, you know, don't worry, it's only for a couple of weeks and then you'll be fine. And we've been doing that kind of piecemeal now for, for, for months and months and months and months. And, you know, back in January, they said, look, we just need to lock down in January to save the NHS, to make sure that we're not overwhelmed because there's an awful lot of people dying. And, and it was true that there were. But we're not now in that place. And yet we're still in the same kind of lockdown. Well, they have that kind of push me, pull you thing. Doesn't yeah. They? You know, says one thing, their behavioural psychologists say something else it's almost impossible to navigate your way through what the hell is actually going on and, and, and when it's going on. And that, of course, raises people's adrenaline levels. It raises people's cortisol levels. Yeah. These are big stress hormones, which are really unhealthy for us. They're unhealthy for us physically. They're unhealthy for us psychologically. Um, and, you know, we've always said it. We need some sort of certainty. I know a lot of this is still unknown, but nevertheless, it, it's... It plays with our minds, really. It's a white noise. You just need to want to block off. And I don't know anybody who hasn't had enough apart from those people who love it. It gives mm. them a great not to socialise, not to go out. You know, the recluses amongst us. Yeah. Probably life has been barely affected. And I mean, I get uh, I get sort of given a hard time by some people saying, you're always, you're always going on about holidays. But I mean, a lot of people have to go abroad i mean i've got family abroad as, as as many people do and it's not just about always going on holiday but equally you know when you do live and work in quite a busy environment holidays are quite important and they're also quite important family time for people like me when i get to spend a, a, a chunk of time uh, you know with my kids which i don't always get to do on a, on a week-to-week basis you know so to see a headline this morning five thousand pound fine for going on holiday abroad i mean it's quite an extraordinary place that we found ourselves in isn't it where they mean by abroad i'm assuming they mean parts of the eu um because of what's going on right but uh you know i i booked a flight out on the at 7 30 on the 17th of may okay you know, good for you well now, done i hope i can do it if i can't i can't I certainly you know i'm working towards what they told me i could work towards right. and taking the first option to do it. it's been a long winter and i uh, and a long year and yeah, of course, I'm going to be massively disappointed, but they do underestimate the importance of value. People are going abroad, as you say, to see family. Mm. Um, you know, we live in a global society. People are all over the place. I mean, and also, what about the vaccinations? I've been double vaccinated. Well, so. quite. I mean, if you, and, 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 and this is the thing. But this is what's so annoying, because, you know, when you book that holiday, I bet you had a sense of a thrill, you know, oh, my God, here's something to look forward to. Because a lot of people I talk to, they, they're like, I just want something to look forward to. And you book a holiday, and that's something to look forward to. And if they take it away from you, it's got a sort of, I mean, I'm hearing from a lot of people now, they just feel kind of beaten down. They feel as if they've got nothing. I think that's a really important point you make. When you take away anticipation, or when you give anticipation, and then you pull back on the mm. anticipation, given that we know much, much more about it than we did a year ago, then you're in a dangerous place because yeah. people stop believing, people start getting restless, frustrated. You know, some of what, what we're seeing on the streets are people who just need to be venting, quite frankly, um, because they don't know what else to do. They've got to kind of let off steam from, from that very kind of 
push me pull you thing that's going on yeah exactly i mean do you think there will be a kind of long i mean they talk about long covid do you think there'll be a kind of long um resulting psychosis in some ways i might be too strong a word but there will be a sort of long-term psychological effect for a lot of people on a lot there also won't be on others i think it's talked about a great deal i mean we will have to go back with some caution some people you know who are who are more risk averse uh than others will by character will probably have to proceed cautiously uh some will throw themselves onto the streets with glee particularly the younger demographic definitely younger people will be out there going whoa i'm gonna make up all mm. the time I've lost. Others still feel concerned. It depends on your what your personal experience has been. Uh, it, it, there's so many factors mm. still there. But yeah, for some people who actually those who have already had anxiety pre-pandemic have probably handled it better than those who because they've got coping mechanisms. Yeah, yeah, maybe. But I mean, I've spoken to a lot of people as well. Have had it before. Yeah. Who I really suffering and quite quietly uh, in some cases, and I don't. You know, I, we need our government to plough some serious dosh into supporting people uh, when this is over, such as it is. Yeah, I mean, certainly I've heard from people who, who say that either their kids have become quite frightened of stuff because the messaging has been frightening. You know, the government have told us, you know, if you go out and you break the rules, you might kill someone or you might die. You know, and I mean, while obviously they had to get a message across, I think that was wrong. I think they uh, misled people. I think they put people into uh, a fearful situation when it wasn't necessary, you know. And I was talking to a politician this morning, Matt Vickers, Tory MP, and I said to him, you know, God knows what you could get if you went abroad in the old days. You know, we used to go uh, on package holidays to places where the food wasn't very good, to places where, you know, the water park was in contaminated with uh, cryptosporidium, you know, and you'd come back with food poisoning or whatever. You know, you go to Magaluf. I don't keep bringing this up because I've never been to Magaluf and I haven't done the things that a lot of people do there. But, you know, you can go to places abroad and have a problem and pick up a disease, you know, but you can't stop that, can you? No, you can't stop that. I mean, look, we've done a good vaccine rollout. I, I just think if we're doing that and we're doing so well, we've got to give people some freedom back as a result of yeah. that. Otherwise, what was the point of it uh, from, from an individual's perspective? And also for kids, what they, that ripple effect, as you say, of fear for children who are unable sometimes to speak their fear, but they might become quite withdrawn, mm. they might become quite naughty. Uh, there are ways that they have to let out their their fear, but they fear their parents are going to die yeah. if they go out or if they go back to school. I mean, fear mongering is possibly the worst form of restrictive messaging or or sensible messaging. It really isn't, and it's something they come back to time and time again. Um, and it's just not the right way to deliver whatever news they have to give us mm. because frightening people in submission is not a strategy I would recommend. No. And the other thing that we've seen a sort of increase in, I suppose you might say, is is kind of net curtain twitching and reporting you know you might remember i think it was uh, back end of last week the 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 old lady who was reported for having a cup of tea uh, with her friends in a garden and the police turned up. And you know the idea that people who are your neighbors would actually call the police on you for doing something so you know, innocent. It's very baffling to me and slightly troubling. It is. I mean, I you remember when they came up with COVID marshals. Yeah. 
kind of be dobbing our neighbours in, um, you know, in a kind of formal way. Well, at least they drop that. Look, there are always going to be stupid people out there who are going to be reporting something nonsensical. Uh, I suppose if there was a rave next door to me, very likely seeing the lady's quite elderly, but let's say she held one, um, and there were people pouring in and out, I probably would report it, to be fair. I would, because that's like, a, the noise would drive me crazy. Uh, B, yeah, but that's a bit different. I mean, it's not like you, you, your old lady neighbours having a cup of tea. Oh, she'd be quite shocked if I reported her having a cup of tea in the Yeah. Uh, no, of course. You know, people have got to be reasonable. The trouble is it's very polarised. It's becoming more polarised, more political. Um, and, you know... It, this whole thing about data, not dates. Well, it does seem to be. We we all hear the dates. We hear the dates. If you're going to be shifting those around, um, again, that message wasn't properly delivered. In so much as I booked my, you know, early morning flight out on seventeenth of May, because that's what I heard. I know underlying that was anything could happen in between time. But it, yeah, people are just in the end they just switch off. Yeah. In the end, but I think, I mean, that was what happened at Christmas. And I think we all accepted it at Christmas because, you know, Boris made a big song and dance about the fact that we'd be able to have five days at Christmas um, to see our relatives and see our various different dislocated families. And that was all great. And then they said, oh, no, we can't do that because there's been this new variant discovered. And I think we all went, oh, God. But at least there was something to hang it on. You could go, well, look, we have to do this because lots of people are now dying. The hospital is getting full up. Fine. But now that's not happening. And now... There's no reason for them to delay it. There's no reason for them to put it off anymore. And yet there's a chance that that might happen. There is a chance that might happen. Yes, I'd be interesting to hear the next press conference to see if this is true about the fines for going away at £5,000. You know, as far as I'm concerned, we are on track, uh, apart from perhaps a slight shortage in vaccines at some point next mm. month. We're still on track for those dates. We're going to start mucking around with those dates. It's going to leave a, very, a great many confused, angry and frustrated people. Yeah, I think so. Finally, Joe, do you think that the country will ever return to what it was like, you know, last February, last January? You know, I'm talking about a year ago. Yeah, well, let's hope so. You know, if we get on top of this, you know, it's a global issue. It's not just a British issue. But yeah, I do. I have every optimism we will get back, perhaps not as fast as people would like it to. It won't be based on June the 21st or whenever it is. Um, there will be certain precautions they will either mandate or request we keep in place. But yeah, within another year, mm. eight months, I actually feel we'll be so delighted to have put this behind us that we'll get on with life perhaps in a way we didn't make the effort to before. Yes, no, absolutely. Well, it could go one or two ways, I suppose. Joe, great to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Joe Hemmings, behavioural psychologist. She's optimistic. She's booked a flight out of here on May the 17th. Let's hope she can get on it. Uh, let's hope you all can. Let's hope they don't keep putting it off. Let's hope they don't keep extending the tunnel at which there is some light at the end because it seems to be like that thing that you just, you can't quite get it. You go for it and, and you go, no, 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 I thought I had it. No, it's gone again. It's gone. Just talk radio. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.
If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. Summer's just around the corner, so give your body the care it deserves with Osea's best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Created by infusing Andaria seaweed in barrels of botanical oils, it leaves skin silky soft and glowing. Plus, it's clinically proven to improve elasticity and deeply moisturize without feeling greasy. It's safe, clean, vegan skincare. Get 10% off your first order at oseamalibu.com with code GLOW, plus free shipping on orders over $60. 